As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The race is on. And over the past week, we've seen Charles Leclerc driving the 2020 Ferrari around Maranello and Racing Point and Renault back in action as this unusual attempt at a second pre-season pots up. But what should we expect from Ferrari once the season starts? And how worried should we be that another F1 team in McLaren potentially needs to sell a stake amid the ongoing financial pressures? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to get excited about the upcoming new season today are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. Mark, how are you feeling about the fact that you're now less than two weeks away from from the season? Presumably you're riding your bike around at at double speed, given the the rising excitement. Yeah, it's getting ever more excited as it gets closer and closer. It actually seems um, impossible that it can be just a couple of weeks from now, because we've been without it for, it feels like, years. But um, yeah, yeah, riding a bike even faster, although I got caught out in a thunderstorm the other day on that but um yeah it's 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 uh it's it's tangible now isn't it it's it's coming um which is great yeah, it's strange isn't it it'll go from a point where we thought the season would never get underway in this period of lockdown and nothing happening would never end and then in a couple of months time we're going to be 10 odd races down as uh, we route through the season so uh yeah it's going to be uh it's going to be quite uh quite the dramatic change uh scott big weekend for you in sweden yeah, it is. It's uh, it's midsummer, which is a big uh, big celebration over here. So, uh, much like they do at Christmas, the Swedes do it slightly weirdly. They have a day dedicated to something, but they do all the celebration of it on the the day before. So, Midsummer's Eve, same as Christmas Eve. Christmas Day is not. They don't really care about that over here. Christmas Eve is the big one. Well, I saw the film Midsummer uh, last year, I think. So, I'm slightly suspicious about whether you'll uh, whether you'll last the distance. Yeah, don't worry. Um, I, I'm not in some. Uh, I'm in my flat in in Stockholm rather than out in the the countryside or on a on on an island. So uh, don't worry. It, it's all it, it's all going to be safe. We can we can we can expect what we would call over here a glad midsummer. Excellent. I'll, I'll keep an eye for in the background any signs of uh, of folk horror tropes uh, creeping into the uh, 
the uh, the, the what what are you you're on a video you're on a video call yes in the video I can see you. You don't need to worry about that because um, as you can see, it's just me and my biggest fan. An excellent visual joke that works brilliantly. Scott is currently grinning like he's made the best joke in history and pointing to a, a big freestanding uh, fan, which I should say isn't pointing at you. So No, no. Well, the, my fans tend not to. They tend to shun me. Over your other shoulder, I can see your, your sim racing uh, rig. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, 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 the visual stick on this podcast is going really well. Yeah, this is the quality of equipment that considerably outdoes the quality of the person using it. Yeah, we uh, we won't talk about your your most. You're, you're having an amazing run of races where you're showing uh, very good pace and potential, but don't quite uh, string it together. Yeah, as uh, my mum said when she asked me how it's going, uh, and I said uh, quite quick, but I keep getting taken out or making a mistake, and she said exactly like your karting career. Then yeah, that's fair. That's fair. All spinning coming out the pit lane. Yeah, exactly. But that slicks on a slicks on a wet track. That's difficult. Ask Jensen Button about. Australia, what, 2010 was it, or 2011? Yeah, 10. He, he, knows, he knows He knows how hard it is. Yeah, but he did go on to win that race. It was a good trick, actually, because by going off on his outlap on slicks, it made people think he'd gone too early and, uh, and and helped him win. Exactly, and I tricked everybody into thinking I knew what I was doing, and then I banked a 19th place finish. So Yeah, so, uh, well, it can only go better next time, I, uh, I hope. But anyway, well, let, let's get on with actually talking about Formula One and start off with you, Mark. Uh, there's been mixed messages about the progress Ferrari has or has not made with its car ahead of the Austrian Grand Prix. You're obviously very well connected in Italy. So what's your understanding of the situation? Ferrari's public message is very much in expectation management mode. Mattia Bernardo explicitly saying, expect us to be no better than the third fastest car behind Mercedes and Red Bull. Uh, just like all the other teams, they will have a package of upgrades compared to Barcelona testing some of which we'll have seen on the car, we would have seen on the car at Melbourne, uh, some in the few weeks of development time outside a factory shutdown since then. But it's clear they aren't expecting those changes to have leapfrogged the car up to the front since those two weeks of testing when it showed nothing that would have had Mercedes concerned. It had lost the straight line advantage of last year's car and although it addressed some of that car's weaknesses in the slow corners with a better balance and more downfalls generally, it wasn't by enough. This car, the SF1000, is essentially just an update of that fast but flawed card of last year, which had great power but a general shortfall of front downforce, especially in the low speed range. But really, it would appear that the inboard loaded front wing concept had simply run out of development potential and wasn't the ultimate solution to the regs introduced last year. But rather than make a whole scale concept change for what was going to be just one year when you had the old new aero formula coming, Ferrari decided a better use of its resources would be just to squeeze what it could from the existing concept. And so they'd almost written off this year, knowing it was with a compromised car. But then, of course, the new era was delayed for a year, which was very bad news for Ferrari. Um, couple this with the tech directives issued late last year and tidied up a few weeks ago regarding fuel flow and how they seemed in testing to impact it upon the Ferrari horsepower advantage. Um, it, it, it's not painting a... A great picture. Um, the, the, in testing, the car looked to be mm, not as bad as the headline numbers. It probably was vying with the Red Bull as the second fastest car, but some way off Mercedes. But I think the Red Bull is probably, it, it, its aero pack um, concept has probably got uh, a greater um, development potential on it. And we're expecting a lot of development from Honda as well. So yeah, I can I can 
absolutely believe that Benotto's statement is just a, a statement of uh, of fact and not some sort of trick of underplaying their true performance. I don't, I don't buy that. That, that theory is around in places, but I don't buy that at all. Um, the Italian media was getting very excited last week about a supposed engine upgrade for Austria and a new gearbox casing is the original one, which has been slimmed down on this design compared to last year's, was flexing. Ferrari insists this is absolutely not the case and neither of those features will be on the car in Austria. So I think we just see the usual... Um, generic developments from front wings and barge boards and flick-ups and louvers and things like that. I don't think we're going to see anything radically new on the car. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's where we're at with Ferrari. I think it's uh, I think it was borne out by their stance on uh, on the reverse grid experiments as well. I sort of have this sort of feeling that while everybody is, uh, it's easy to sort of jump on Mercedes and accuse them of self-interest for blocking reverse grids. I also, I think it says a lot about what sort of Ferrari were um, sort of expecting to be the case uh, for them this season, and likewise Red Bull that they were they they were quite keen for for reverse grids. Ultimately, if you think you're going to go in as the fastest car, you probably want to maintain the status quo, don't you? So, I, I think every indication from Ferrari has been that they will be slightly behind the curve and as as mark said i don't i don't think it's a bluff i think it's, it's they're, they're obviously not going to be miles off but uh, i think they're bracing themselves aren't they for for a tricky season maybe a tricky couple of seasons it'll be interesting to see how aggressively they can upgrade that car because as mark's pointed out they've got to carry it through next season as well so i guess this run of races whether they can make enough changes and find enough understanding to actually make a step change in in the performance that could throw them towards the front it's going to be uh it's going to be tough going uh, as a side note on the the thing about engines Gunter Steiner was asked about this uh late last week in, in a press conference and he confirmed that the engine spec would be exactly the same for for them which doesn't necessarily mean it's the same for Ferrari automatically but usually we see uh we see the customer Ferrari teams getting the upgrade at the same time or in fact even a race earlier we've uh we've seen in the in the past obviously that wouldn't work in, in this case because you uh you can't kind of stagger it for the for the first race but yeah ferrari in a very strange position I, i'd certainly agree that testing they weren't quite as bad as they looked from the headline times i was i was a bit surprised people were predicting that they'd be miles behind racing points or sort of buried in the midfield uh, based on the early running but yeah very tricky position it's it's funny ferrari they've never quite on 100 percent in recent times convinced that they're completely on top of things aero wise they've had They've had success in recent years, often with cars that were, should we say, slightly overpowered in certain areas, whether it was literally in terms of power, as it was uh, last year or in other aspects. Not just never quite had that all-round average car. The thing that James Allison's always talking about, that you you design the best overall set of characteristics for the average of the circuits that you're you're going to this year. And, and that, that aero slight weakness that Ferrari's had for for years has been a long-term problem what, what do you think mark do you think this is just a another manifestation of ferrari just being that quarter step behind uh aerodynamically in terms of not just quite able to do what what a mercedes or, or a red bull can do i think it's not specifically aerodynamic i think um say the 2017 car and to an extent the 2018 car they were very very advanced aerodynamically probably more advanced than the mercedes actually um, but it's 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 getting that rounded package, as you say, <clears throat> and I think that's just a, you know a, a measure, you're measuring it against arguably the, the 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 
greatest Formula One team there has ever been. And you you know, you they're coming up a little bit short against them. <clears throat> and I think, yeah, it's just a, it's just a measure of their overall the roundness of, of their ability. And if, if they attack one problem, they they it seems to pull them down somewhere else. And operationally, I would say, is, is where they've been the weakest. That's been the, their consistent weakness, even when the cars have been super fast. They've not always been the, the best the best team on a race weekend in terms of the operation. So, yeah, I I, I agree. They, they're just they're frustratingly almost there so often, but never quite put all the bits together. And... You know, when you're up against uh, a team of the caliber of, of Mercedes, um, you, you, you're going to get found out. Yeah, and, and that's that's been the case in uh, in recent years. And obviously, expectations at Ferrari are sky high, aren't they? Winning races in the season isn't enough. They need to be winning the championship, and uh, that hasn't happened for for a long time now. You've got to go all the way back to 2008 for the last time they won a, a, a constructors. Uh, championship so yeah hard, hard times for them and of course we have seen Charles Leclerc out uh, on a brief uh, demo run in the 2020 car driving around the the streets of Maranello uh, that was last Thursday they were they were doing that so obviously Ferrari getting themselves fired back up although uh, I don't think that's going to be a huge benefit for them uh, is it Scott? Uh, no it's not going to be something that they can get um, let's say uh, any any kind of insight into into how the car works but it's a uh, is it was a, a symbolic run the fact that they're back they're ready to go there was a bit of confusion over whether or not that would um immediately proceed a, a test at Fiorano in a 2018 car uh, which has been widely expected but it seems that Ferrari simply made use of one of their demonstration events that they're they're allowed to do we hear um we hear teams talk about filming days quite a lot uh where you've got 100 kilometers of running on Pirelli demo tires uh but there is also the, the, I guess, the lesser used demonstration event provision within the regulations, which is not on an F1 circuit and 15 kilometers uh, in length, which is uh, more than enough, I think, for, for, for Leclerc to, to, to get rowdy early in the morning in Maranello and, and wake up a few people. He put a cheeky message on on Instagram, apologizing to residents if he woke them up. Saying that he's sorry, but he needed to he needed to get to work. So yeah, n- nothing from a competitive point of view. But um, if you want to try and take some, if you want to try and spin something nice out of it, it's just a little bit of an indication of sort of what Ferrari is like as a team now. I think especially under Bonotto, because I don't know whether or not I don't know how much this has been done in the interim years. But I saw an image on uh, I saw an image on Twitter where uh, you had. I think it was it uh, Enzo driving a car out of the gates at Maranello what would have been must have been more more than 70 years ago now um and then uh, side by side of it was was Charles bringing the 2020 car out of the gates and Ferrari said he's the first sort of modern era driver to have driven a car on the streets of Maranello so it's just quite cool I, I, it doesn't mean anything it doesn't really mean that they're going to be uh, fighting for titles or anything like that, but I, I, I still, I do quite like this sort of new era Ferrari, shall we say, under Mattia Bonotto. Yeah, it's a little bit more fun, and just in fact uh, to clear up the the testing regulations because people keep asking questions about this. There's multiple different forms of testing. You can have testing of current cars, which is exactly what it sounds like. Testing 2020 cars, that's basically uh, banned. You've got testing of previous cars, which is 2016 to 2018 spec 
cars, which have to be in period specification, which which you can do, which is what we've seen Renault do Mercedes. There's testing of historic cars, which is for for even older ones, which isn't normally that relevant to the uh, to to the current teams. And you've got promotional days, which is the, what's normally called a filming day, which is the hundred kilometer one then demo event. So there's there's kind of five tiers of types of testing in the ever simple uh, F1 regulations. What about um, testing your eyesight? What about driving to test your eyesight, like, like Dominic Cummings did? Because I know I know Charles got um, wears glasses sometimes when he's doing sim racing. Maybe maybe you could justify driving around the streets to Maranello to because he was testing his eyesight in preparation for the season. Maybe that was it. Maybe it wasn't a demonstration event at all. Maybe the argument will be I didn't break the I didn't break the rules. I was simply dro- like going out for a little drive in my for- Formula One car for, for for an eyesight test. So but yeah, maybe maybe he's. Maybe that's it in, entirely. It would also explain why Ferrari was slightly cagey and had a little bit of mystery around it as well. They weren't entirely sure how to address it. It was a proper homage. It certainly shows that Charles Leclerc know, knows he can now safely uh, do longer distances in the car. So that that's uh, that's positive. Although, of course, we are here mixing sport and politics, which, as uh, as various shouty people on social media say, never ever mix. There's there's never any intersection uh, there. But anyway. Uh, before we wind people up uh, too much, we can get on to some of the other running, Scott. Uh, we've seen Lance Stroll in action in the 2020 Racing Point, so that's a promotional day at Silverstone. Renault's did two days of testing at the Red Bull Ring with a 2018 car, so that's uh, testing a previous car, as it's called in the regulation. So how valuable do you think these sorts of runs are? I, I think we, we, we won't know for certain until we see how the teams who haven't had them fare in Austria. I think it's less about... I think it's less about finding a way like within the rules or the protocols to sort of do something better. And I think it might be more people tripping up and not being able to do everything. So I think there's a finite limit to which you can operate, obviously. And then I think it will just be the teams that haven't done this running, this live work in a pit lane or in a garage. Uh, they won't necessarily get up to that level. I spoke to to to, to Andy Green, the, the, the racing point technical director about this and he said he's not convinced that there's a big advantage so to speak about doing it it's more just they've had the opportunity in a live environment to go right this is okay this is okay we hadn't thought about this this is harder than we expected and now they will refine their processes between now and and Austria to make sure that everything's um, up to scratch shall, shall we say and I think like Mercedes had said before they went to their Silverstone test that they sort of identified where they thought the pinch points would be. And then it's just a good opportunity to to put it into practice because you can do a lot of this work at, at the factory. You can simulate a lot of the environments, uh, but there is a difference to sort of working within the confines of, of the garage and then actually what it's like when a car comes into into the box and you need to, to, to pull it back in, et cetera, et cetera. So there's quite, I think there's quite a few lessons to be learned there. Um, I think one of the interesting things was Andy Green sort of talking about how much of a challenge certain elements will be. And the biggest thing within that will be certain elements uh, on the car that need changing might now take twice as long. He said, for example, an engine change, you definitely don't want to be doing that in a hurry over a Grand Prix weekend. And he also pointed out that the drivers will have it, it will be made very clear to the drivers um how important it is not to to come back with damage basically so you're never you're never encouraged to crash <laughs> it's not something the teams ever want you to do but there's sort of a i guess there's a bit of an un, unspoken it doesn't really matter if you crash because obviously we'll just replace it 
Whereas now it's very much a, we need to be careful because not only is it going to be longer to make changes on the car, but we're going to be away for three weeks at a time and we're going to do six races in seven weeks and eight races in 10 weeks or whatever it turns out to be. And churning out parts, making sure you've got enough spares is going to be difficult as well. And that's the worst case scenario for a team to be in. Not much time to make the changes if something does break and not many spare parts to have on the shelf if you start going through them. So it, it's going to be it's going to be quite difficult. And I I think I think any team that's been able to do this running, so that so far Mercedes at Silverstone over two days, Racing Point at Silverstone over one day, uh, Renault at the Red Bull Ring over two days with a 2018 car. Uh, Alpha Tauri want to do a filming day at, at Imola. Uh, Red Bull, I'm pretty sure, are, are going to do something. They, they're going to have they're going to have something quite quite useful, I think, from that. I think also, you know, we talk about with drivers how they perform at its best when it's very much in the subconscious processing. But the same goes for for everyone, and that's why I think these sort of simulated garages with all the getting used to the the distancing and all the little measures, just having a little bit of a run at that will help team personnel just be a little bit more familiar and not having to think about whether they're doing things in the right way and that does impact on performance for for everyone so if you do have to do something big like an engine change or just even just day-to-day tasks it'll just be that just tiny bit more natural that little bit quicker for for them which i think is the the real value for that so it's just a, a small thing that will that will make your team be almost less distracted, shall we say, because obviously Formula 1 teams work really well and smoothly because they practice stuff, they're really used to it, they're extremely accomplished people who've worked very hard to be very, very good at at, at what they do. So I, I am quite interested. Mark, what do you think? Do you think we'll see some signs of shakiness and rustiness, whether it's for teams, drivers, or or anyone when we get to the, the first Austria weekend, just because of the weird preparation for this whole season and the hiatus, the circumstances are unique. Yeah, there's bound to be. There's, there's got to be. Um, how significant they turn out to be, we'll see. But one thing that does um, strike me is that Austria has um, some very aggressive curbs if you get offline. Um, and I'm thinking around the exit of the old uh, Texaco chicane and, and into the um, entry into the exit of the uh, Rid. The, what used to be the ring curve, the penultimate corner, um, which have caused all sorts of problems for teams in the past. And if we're looking at, um, you know, really, really needing to conserve uh, front wings and body parts and things like that, it's going to be extra tough having our first two races at that particular track. Um, so, yeah, we could see all sorts of dramas there, I think, and uh, especially in the second week. Yeah, interestingly, Gunter Steiner, again, uh, the Haas team principal, mentioned that there was some potential talk of initiatives to try and make the tracks less aggressive in the runoff and that kind of thing but not really sure what's uh, what's coming of that i'd be surprised if uh, if big changes come because those sausage curbs for example at red bull ring are there for a reason and actually i quite like them because we all talk about how we don't like it when drivers can abuse runoff and get away with mistakes so yeah you pay the price okay it's maybe a bit extreme in terms of the amount of uh, front wing assemblies that get beaten up in uh, in austria and i dread to think how many teams are having to take with them to, to cover two whole weekends uh, at that circuit but I, I quite like it because it's just a circuit I, I actually think the Red Bull Ring's a, a great place to start because I think it, it's a really underrated circuit yeah we know it produces exciting races and we've had some some great storylines there in recent years but also I think it's a really good driver's circuit because it's challenging it generates mistakes it, it's it's short sharp and has a bit of everything 
I, I, I really like it. And on the subject of the curbs, it reminds me of the 2017 uh, Austrian Grand Prix was the, the second uh, second Formula One race that I that I worked. And um, I remember the, the curbs were being a, a, a big talking point, the, 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 the runoff and just sort of the, the damage that you'd that you'd get from it and being like, oh, this is interesting. Everyone's talking about this and sort of excitedly being like, oh, this is a big concern. I think we should watch out for it this weekend, blah, blah, blah. Then going back there a year later when I was in my first full season of covering Formula One and it's almost an exact, exact conversation again in 2018 and sort of thinking, okay, well, so I heard this last year, but... You know, I think what I think someone has suggested that like the profiling had changed, or that it was more of them, or it was the, it's not the, necessarily the sausage curb; it's the bit that we've got um, on the on the out, not properly on the outside at the the final couple of corners. So that needs to be changed. And then went back there last year, and it was exactly the same conversation again. It's like F one drivers just don't change, do they? They will moan about something and say we need we need some kind of deterrent, and then they have it, and then it, they just get angry about it for no reason. I quite like it as well because um, you may have well watched here as well, Mark. But if you go up to turn one, for example, at the exit of that corner, you see drivers leaning on the kind of closest edge of the sausage curb. And then there's just that thing where if you go that little bit too far, you kind of drop over the edge of it and you see them scuffing the, uh, the, uh, the, the underfloor of the car. And just, I quite like that because you've got something where they're trying to use sort of half of a sausage curb, but just that, that punishment for being like a couple of millimetres too far that's what we want from circuits isn't it whereby if you just overstep that small amount you do you do pay whether it's by losing a little bit of time a little bit of that compromised exit speed or even beating up the uh beating up the floor or damaging your front wing yeah it makes it more demanding you just you know there's a little bit of jeopardy there there's an advantage to be hard if you can use up the last little bit of it and it's there it's there tempting you to be to take it but there's there's some jeopardy there if you overstep it so yeah it's exactly how it should be you know we will separate out the the great from the good and that's that's exactly what you want from a track yeah that's what it's all about well looking again at off-track matters mark there's been a lot of talk about mclaren's financial situation recently there's 1200 job cuts to come across the whole mclaren group that is and now there's talk about them potentially needing to sell a minority stake in the team to get a bit of a, a cash injection how worried do you think we should be about the situation of mclaren I think we should be worried generally about the McLaren group. Um, the, the team itself, I would argue, less so. Um, but it's so to give some background, it's an incredibly tough time for the automotive industry, and it especially isn't a time when wealthy customers go out shopping for supercars. So the McLaren factory you know, has been on shutdown for a few months now. McLaren Group as a whole has been taking a massive financial hit, hence the, the redundancies. Um, Montalacat, which is the sovereign wealth fund of Bahrain, has got 59% shareholding in the group, uh, of which the F1 team is part, and the F1 team represents about 20% of the group's turnover. Montalacat put in around £300 million to the group in March, but has been reluctant to invest further. It's not a great time for the oil-based economy in the Middle East either. That still left McLaren needing additional needing additional investment just to retain its liquidity, the, the group I'm talking about. And that's very much an ongoing project. And part of the solution has been to issue McLaren bonds, which are interest-paying loans, essentially. But the terms of these has upset some of the existing bondholders because bonds were also issued in 2017 in order to buy out Ron Dennis. So that row is ongoing, and it's putting pressure on all parts of the group, including the F1 team, 
to raise finance from somewhere else. So McLaren is looking, as you say, at selling a, a minority interest stake in the, in the team. Um, so I think the, the team itself is in a good place. Its prospects are, are, are good, especially now with the cost caps in place. Its, um, its trajectory of improvement is very clear. It's too good a team to just disappear. It has too much value in it. So whether the, whether it is able to remain within the McLaren group isn't really um, in, within its control. It's, it's within the, the bigger finances of the group itself. Oh, it, it's quite feasible that um, a, any potential shareholder doesn't want to be a minority share. He wants to be majority shareholder, and in which case the group would then have a difficult decision to make. Um, do they take that, whatever that money might be on offer, to pump into the rest of the group, or do they, you know, do they convince the Montalacat to um, put their hands even deeper in their pockets to retain the the, the the team within the group. Um, so I don't think we should be um, worried an immediate concern um, in terms of the team, but it's um, it's a very tricky situation for the group. It does show why, although diversifying and being part of a wider group can be a very positive thing, it can also be difficult in times of trouble, can't it? Because you're only as strong as your weakest link. And as you say, the automotive industry has uh, taken an absolute beating in the past few months because obviously people haven't been uh, haven't been buying cars, particularly not buying uh, pricey cars as uh, obviously McLaren's at the, the high end of it. So the yeah, interesting situation, obviously, there's quite a few opportunities at the moment to get a stake or get ownership of a Formula One team. We know Williams is going through its uh, strategic review. One of the possibilities there is a sale of the whole uh, team. We know McLaren is uh, is looking, and that there's other teams that could potentially be be available. So it becomes a bit of a buyer's market for if you want to get involved with buying a chunk of a of an F1 team, and that means if you're trying to sell Williams, you know they're looking for if they're looking for a couple of hundred million. So it's it becomes difficult to to justify that valuation given the the profitability or not thereof of uh, of, of what what you're buying when there's other opportunities around. So it could become a bit of a battle to get. Uh, to get some investment in and of course yeah of course McLaren wants to sell a minority stake because it doesn't want to lose control does it but people buying like to like to get control sometimes so uh, yeah interesting times it is that slightly curious i guess sort of limbo that formula 1's in at the moment because we've got um we've got a bit of uh, we've got a bit of stability in terms of spending at the moment with various uh, me- cost-saving measures that have been put in, delaying technical rules, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we've got on the horizon a change in fun- like the fundamentals of Formula One that will bring spending under control more, sort of on a, in a, on a bigger scale, and it will it will cut expenditure and it should boost team teams' income because you'll have a cost cap. Uh, in place there'll be sort of pseudo standardization of parts through um uh through open source components and greater standardization of other parts and then there's going to be a redistribution of the way uh or sorry a, 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 an adjustment of the way f1 distributes it, its its prize money so it should become not lucrative but it should become much more sustainable so you've got this bigger picture on the, that that is going to get much better for formula 1 over the next few years but the teams that are not benefiting from that at the moment, the teams that are struggling need to sort of get through this period to, to, to get to that sort of utopia. So you're asking 
all of these in, investors or shareholders that are and, and these companies that are losing money by being in Formula One, you're asking them to carry on losing money effectively for another year, two years, maybe three years, because on on the promise that it should be better at, at, at the end. So I it's, I think it's I think it's quite tricky because if you've got someone out there that's willing to 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 invest, whether that's in McLaren as a, uh, with a minority stake or buying the team completely or whatever you went for, and likewise Williams, the prospects for that team could actually be really good. As you said, a buyer's market. You you could if you if you turn around and said, actually, do you know what? I don't mind this investment of X hundred million pounds, dollars, euros, whatever, because I can afford that and bigger picture, it's going to be really nice. But it's much harder to justify it if you've been losing that loads of money for the last few years to keep putting your hand in your pocket. Yeah, absolutely. And the whole situation, ultimately, it's great Formula One has, has reacted to this. But frankly, F1 could have put itself in, in a better financial footing, F1 as a whole, far earlier and then been in a better position to weather this. You can say, yeah, nobody foresaw uh, the COVID-19 pandemic striking, obviously not the specific thing. But there's often these 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 events, these times of financial hardship, they come along periodically for myriad reasons. And while some people will suffer financially through no fault of their own and because the changing circumstances mean you can't really plan for it. Formula One as a whole was making enough money for things to be in a better position. It's in times like this when when the cracks that are there start to show more. So it's, a, it's just a little bit of a shame that this wasn't this wasn't responded to in before the fact, shall we say, because there was always going to be something like this going on. But let's hope for McLaren's sake that they do, uh, that, that the race team isn't, isn't too badly affected by this because they, they've done great things to to get that team back on an upward trajectory they've got some very good people there some very good long-term strategic plans as well that, that can credibly be said to make that team potentially a, a front runner again down the line so uh yeah we can but hope that they do well and that a team like williams finds uh finds a a buyer because uh yeah we, we need we need teams on the grid and this is why it was necessary for the for the biggest teams to also partly be responsible for ensuring that all the teams in F1 were in a, in a healthy position. So, uh, yeah, difficult uh, difficult time, so good luck to, to all on that. Uh, Scott, let's move on to uh, to upgrades. Uh, Steiner at Haas said they won't be throwing any upgrades at the team until they know what the budget situation is, given the uncertainty over the number of races. That could be a while, given the, uh, the uh, vague calendar we've got uh, for the second part of the season. Obviously, it makes no sense for them to spend money they aren't certain they're going to have. And he said that it would be stupid to spend that money and then risk not having the running budget for the later races. So no upgrades. And they've also dialed back the the design work and the aero testing work to uh, to a minimum a minimal level. So yeah, they, they've kind of turned off those development taps. So that shows that the the COVID nineteen pandemic impact, which of course is ongoing, will be felt for a good while yet, doesn't it? Yeah, um, I think the teams that can afford to sort of push through certain development absolutely will. I know Mercedes is is definitely planning to to do what it can in terms of development, but a team like Haas and I, you, you'd imagine that someone like Williams must be in that boat uh, as well. We we know that Williams have said that they've got the budget to complete the season. I think that to me was a bit like the equivalent of a football like board or chairman giving the manager a vote of confidence like this thing that no one's really questioning suddenly has this very positive need to to or a public need to to positively back it i don't 
it's not it shouldn't really be an achievement for a team to have the budget to complete the season. So uh, if and and Williams isn't running a, a car on track before Austria as well because he doesn't have the budget to do so. So I can't imagine Williams is going to be uh, churning through through upgrades and whether or not. I guess it depends how how advanced the car was going to Australia, how big a gain they thought those early season upgrades would actually be. For a team like Haas, I guess you could argue that they were so lost last season and struggled so much last year that they basically just want to... Be, they think that there is still a lot to gain just by actually making sure that the 2020 car works and, and making the most out of it because they've, they, they quite easily tied themselves up in knots last year and it wasn't the first time either. So... But all the while you have this disparity between teams that can still afford to push on with some development alongside a really hectic run of races. Uh, yeah, I guess it could change the competitive picture quite in, in quite a significant way. The other thing on this, Mark, is obviously just because you don't have new bits on the car doesn't necessarily mean you can't make gains. We have seen times where teams have actually gained more from just sticking with what they've got and understanding it better. So do you think... Firstly, that there, there could be a little bit of an upside for a team like Haas or some of the other teams that aren't going to be throwing new bits on the car, and at least that they're on firm ground with their understanding and that they might get, even even though the potential of the car isn't increased by putting on new bits, their ability to extract the potential they do have grows because of that stability. Yeah, we, we've seen that before, particularly with Haas, actually. Um, and we saw the, you know, how they um, had um, a better... Bit, a bit Better run with the old spec car last year than the, the new spec one. Um, there's, there's that there's that aspect which you do, we do quite often see a better understanding of a existing car, <clears throat> and there's also the fact that even though you're not producing the parts because you can't afford to, to do it, you can still be developing the car in the virtual world, and um, so it, it can be that. You know, we saw a couple of years ago with, with, with Force India when it was in financial straits, um, it was continued to develop the car, even though the new bits weren't going on it. And then when it got the new ownership mid-season and the new parts were able to be made, they were sort of three or four steps um, evolved from what, what had been on the car at that point. They, they went straight from spec one to spec four, as it were, because you can continue this development program um, on CFD in the tunnel. Yeah, and obviously in the in the case of a team like Haas, because they've they've dialed back the the upgrades, they won't have a big step. But uh, but yeah, that there is there is a lot to be gained from uh, from having your understanding of the, the car grow. So let's hope that works for for some of those teams. And also, Scott, we have heard that uh, that Mercedes have, have confirmed that they've got some parts to throw at the car. James Allison, as he always is, is eloquent in explaining. Uh, why they've got so many bits in in the pipeline? Yeah, he basically said that um, because the the car that they would have started the season with in Australia uh, and the car that they ran at testing was basically the 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 launch car, a, a spec that had been frozen. Um, he said around Christmas time, so January, February, and the start of March was was all a lot of development work back at base trying to work out exactly where to to improve the car and uh, then I guess the idea would have been to put those parts into production and then introduce them early in the season but that hasn't happened obviously uh now because the teams have been in uh, either on on lockdown in their respective countries or 
ad- adhering to F1 shutdown regulations basically simultaneously, but there are still some restrictions in terms of who can go back to work and what the teams can do at the factories. There have been limitations. It's not like they've spent those three months manufacturing the parts back at base. So now, or rather since the team, since Mercedes was back at work at the start of June, four weeks basically to get everything ready for Austria, they're basically working out, right, we've had, they've had basically a quarter of a year of development. Now how do we make sure that that translates into physical components that we can take to the track and we know that they'll actually work? So they're basically going to do as much as possible to bring as many of those updates or as, rather as, as potent a combination of updates as they can for when the season starts in Austria. And then depending on the schedule, depending on how long the season goes on for and what the capacity is back at factory and for the race team because obviously if you're producing loads of spares you can't really it's going to impact your ability to produce upgraded components so depending on how the season plays out they will then obviously try to continue development and bring more parts well speaking of mercedes mark they've announced that andy cowell is leaving his role as managing director of mercedes high performance powertrains at the start of july he's had a huge impact on the dominance of mercedes in the 1.6 litre turbo hybrid era how big a blow do you think this is? How long term? It's um, it's a, it's a great blow. Um, he's one of the, you know, we, we talk about Adrian Newey as being one of the, you know, the the, the shining um, tech director, designer, aerodynamicist, what have you. Um, Andy's the equivalent of that in, in engine design. You know, he, this is a guy that did um, the Cosworth CR1 in 99, which set new standards of technology. He's the guy that did that fantastic BMW engine, which you know, for a time had like a 50 horsepower advantage on the rest of the field, and he subsequently um, went to Elmore and uh, which subsequently became Mercedes HPP, and that's he's been the boss there um, since 2012, and was him and Ross Braun um, working together uh, several years in advance on the hybrid project uh, was really the the foundation of the, the the Mercedes era of dominance that we've had in uh, since 2014. Um, he's not only a, a brilliant engineer, but he's um, he's a brilliant leader of men, and so that that whole Bricksworth factory, but also the way that the Bricksworth factory integrates um, with uh, the Brackley factory where the, the cars on it, it is it, it it's absolutely. Um, singing off, the, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, and that's um, very much down to Andy and the the, the way he um, visualizes what the what the task is is um, it's to do with the the lap time of the car. He, 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 although he's an engine guy, he absolutely gets where the compromises need to be made. Is not someone that the aerodynamicists are constantly having to fight with because you know he wants to do something which is going to give more horsepower or they want to do something which is um going to give them better aero that that's never a there's never been a, a struggle there or uh, it, it's always just been done on uh logic and numbers and uh, that's very much part of his um philosophy and it, it's it's ingrained in the the culture of those those places so yeah a massive part of the success that they've had i would think i'm going it's not it's not going to just suddenly switch off 
uh, all those benefits that he's that he's brought. He'll carry a, a momentum for a long time yet, but a lot will be um, hanging on the performance in, in in terms of the long term prospects of of the team, the performance that the um, his successors uh, bring, and how much how much of that they they have taken on themselves and how well they can replicate it. It's a good time for this transition in 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 many ways because the um you could argue that the the the, the hardest part of this engineer has been has been done and, and and Andy over oversaw that and was the big part of why Mercedes did such a good job of it. The 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 upgrades are now going to be limited over this season, next couple of seasons and then frozen out completely for a couple of years, which means a decent lead up to the next set of engine regulations, which won't be before 2026. So in, in that regard, it's a good, uh, it's a good time for the transition. I guess the, the stresses and focal points are going to be different, but that doesn't mean that there aren't challenges within that because with a freeze of specification and limited upgrades means fewer opportunities to address things that you get wrong. And we have seen over the last 18 months or so, small reliability gremlins on the Mercedes side. And they were talking at the start of this year about needing to make sure that the car, the engine was a more reliable package for the, for the start of the season. And they have been legally or otherwise overtaken or caught by Ferrari and Honda. So Mercedes isn't exactly the, the clear benchmark in the, in the engine war from a Formula One point of view. So there are, there are pluses and minuses for that. I would like to think that given how, higher quality of engineer Andy was but also a, a man manager that not only does he have a did he have fantastic lessons for all those other people to to, to learn but he, they'd have been encouraged to actually take the take it on board because it's not just someone leading by example it's someone who cares about that succession and making sure that people actually learn from it and, and realize how to get more out of themselves and out of each other so I think I think they'll handle it quite well I think it's a different kind of challenge to the other big names we've seen depart Mercedes. So you have Nico Rosberg on the driver's side or Paddy Lowe from a technical chief side, Aldo Costa from that engineering group idea. It's the, the other part of the business. It's someone who has been much more ingrained in that process, much more of a figurehead as well. So very different challenge, arguably the, the, the toughest one so far, but Mercedes has maintained its position on top because it's so good at adjusting to this. And given Cowell is... Um, it appears to be as much of a top bloke as he is a, a top engineer. I would imagine that by staying on and assisting with the transition, he will give everything to make sure he leaves Mercedes high performance powertrains in a strong position. Yeah, this will have been very well prepared for and, and planned for. And that's one of the great strengths of Bricksworth, how far ahead they work. Of course, the, the first single cylinder test for the new generation Formula One engines as the 2014 engines were at the time was way back in 2010 before the rules were even even finalised, so they were well advanced with that project, and that's the reason why they started so well. Uh, in fact, I remember seeing the the four cylinder engine block that was obviously the, the abandoned rule set. It was originally going to be a a four cylinder engine rather than a, a V six. So they've always been very very good at looking long term. And of course, the next challenge on the horizon will be the the new engine regulations. Currently, probably for twenty twenty six, but still, that's one of the F one's next big challenges to work on. So that'll be kind of the test, I think, for. Uh, for Bricksworth about the succession planning, and I, I suspect they'll have done it. They'll have done it uh, quite well. Fantastic as uh, as Andy Cowell is, you know, it, it's the impact he had on the whole wider organisation around him that was that was the real testament to that. And I'm sure that will 
translate into what he what he leaves behind as uh, as well. Now, shall we take a bit of a risk and let you take control, Scott, and uh, move on to Scott's people? I, I would like to. I would like an explanation first for what's on your t-shirt. I've been trying to work out what what is it a horse? Is it a dog? Is it a polar bear? Is it an unusually shaped mountain? It's a it's a, a, a dal and a hest. It's a dal and a horse. Uh, it is a uh, it's basically like the symbol of uh, Dalarna, which is a, a county north in north from from Stockholm, which is where my uh, my partner's uh, parents have a, a a little summer house uh, in a this. So this t shirt has a pink Dalarna hest on it, and then it has Lexand underneath, and Lexand is like the small town that I bought the t shirt from, which is where the the summer house is. So I like it. I think it's uh, like I said, it's um, it's midsummer out here. So I thought I'd uh, and my uh, Swedish football shirt's in the wash. So I thought I'd wear this as a bit of a show of uh, Swedish pride. Why did you ask that? Why why ask that question? I've just been I've just been wondering because <laughs> while you were talking, rather than listening to you, I was just sort of looking around and I thought, well, I wonder what wonder what's going on there. Plus, I think it's quite good because you do a, you do a good service to uh, Swedish outreach on this podcast. So it's another chance for you to. Uh, to get your get earn your kickback from the uh the Stockholm Tourism Board. Yeah, that's fair. Um I I I would I would urge uh if it if, if it were possible to do it safely, I would urge people to check out Sweden in the summer. It's very lovely. And uh that that should actually give me another sort of 2 or 300 quid. So thanks very much, Ed. Excellent. Massively appreciated. Would you like to get on with whatever madness you've got planned for Scots people? Uh, yeah, it's not madness, actually. I did ask a question at the end of the last uh, podcast, which was sort of like a no holds barred, where would you like to see F1 go? Because obviously F1, on the in, in putting together their revised 2020 schedule, they've sort of got a bit more creative. They've got some circuits in the mix that wouldn't have otherwise been in the mix. And, and we sort of talked a little bit about that on the last podcast, and I wanted to go a little bit mad for this one. But I've changed it. We will We will do that one probably for the next one. But I changed it because obviously reverse grid races has been a big talking point over the last week or two. And it seems that they're going to be inevitable for 2021 because while they've been able to be blocked by Mercedes for this year, the way that the F1's voting system and governance is going to change for next year, F1 seems quite confident they'll actually be able to table a new vote and and get it all pushed through. And I put put a little poll out on uh, Twitter. I've got nearly a thousand responses, which I was really really pleased with and it wasn't so much the the breakdown of responses that i cared about it was more the really sort of sensible explanations that people gave it wasn't they they weren't they didn't want to just a lot of people didn't want to just vote in the poll they messaged me to give me their feedback so i wanted to sort of rattle through a few of the and some of them are reasoned and some of them are the obligatory hatred and short and to the point social media messages that such a topic uh, 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 draws. So um, one of the common responses, so uh, Jerome uh, at Jimmy Manor said, he's against it, of course. Qualifying should be forever about the ultimate lap time. It should never be about racing. Uh, another response was for, I've got no idea how to pronounce this because it's just a Twitter account name. Ophitus21, Ophitus20, I don't know. Anyway, they said that they, that, they're fully against it because it's gimmicky and trying to fix non-existent issues. I'm not entirely convinced by that. But the problem with F1, they say, is solved by creating a better technical regulation on the cost cap. These are ready to be introduced in 2022. NASCAR has tried for years 
gimmicks with the format and look at the results. I fully get it and I still hate it because it will disrupt the season unfairly. Three races in a shorter season can have a monumental impact on the championship to the point a different champion could be crowned. I I I I I don't think that's a particularly unfair position to 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 take. But Mark, do you think that if that happened, if say for example we had three really random results in the races that say would have been affected by a reverse good qualifying race, do you think that would have put an asterisk against the season in any way? No, everybody starts with the same chance, don't they? And you, you you've just got to go with what you, you're given, the, the hand you're dealt with, haven't you? So, no, I, I don't think there's any aspirin against anything that gets achieved by anyone this year. It's um, it's it's this, the season that they're being asked to compete in and everybody's under the, you know, got the same circumstances. So, no, I, I, I disagree with that. That's fair. Uh, Richard Taylor said, uh, said F1 has always been about ultimate driver versus machine and the best of the best. You earn it, have to work hard for it. Qualifying is that ultimate one lap, fastest car, fastest driver gets it, and it's amazing to watch. There are there are so many races we consider classics because they sprung up surprises. If we make whatever the new norm, make that whatever the new norm is, we lose that. I want to solve the real problems with the cars, but also for the sport to stand for something. It's been directionless for too long. Uh, I want to watch the best race and fastest person win, but I also want to remember the special races. We're obsessed with everything becoming special all the time, but if it becomes the norm and the norm isn't special, we get used to whatever that is. What do you reckon, Ed? There'll always be a spread of quality of races. I've I've got no problem with overall increasing the the quality of uh, of everything. I would argue that because the number of absolutely classic races isn't isn't quite as many as we we'd like i'd agree you want races to be special you don't want overtaking to be too cheap or race wins to be too cheap but i I don't i see where he's coming from but there's often suggestions for little lots of little things that can be done to to guarantee excitement to contrive things etc one of the reasons why the reverse grid thing is something i'm willing to consider is it's a single thing you can do that will have a huge impact on a number of different areas so I actually think it's less interventionalist than a number of other measures that have been uh, been suggested. It, it modifies and redefines what it means to win a Grand Prix. It means that if you, by definition, if you win a race, you will have had to have raced well. I don't think automatically having any kind of reverse grids will mean every race is Suzuka 2005. I just think it increases the the possibility. But the fundamental thing is, I listen to the complaints that are regularly levelled about Formula One over a very long time now. And they are almost always fundamentally down to the fact that if you arrange the cars in order of fastest first down to slowest, why do we expect there to be great racing? Because racing is built on variables of, of pace, etc., and people being out of position. So that that's that's the kind of philosophical quandary at, at the heart of it. My only real stipulation is I think anything we do has to be equitable, which is why I dislike random randomised grids. It's it's foolish to aim to make every race automatically a thrill a minute by mandating all these these thrills but i do think if you can create more interesting conditions you'll create you'll, you'll have downstream effects for example you will have to make your your aero map a little bit more benign because you're going to have to follow people more often you can't just qualify at the front and pull away little things like that will could have a, a surprisingly large impact oh ed oh sorry you froze i thought we'd lost you anyway sorry i think that I, it looks like skype couldn't quite handle the uh the ferocity of that monologue in response to, to reverse grid, so it froze on my end. <laughs> I think Skype was right to to, to stop me at that point. <laughs> to I, cut I'd you gone off. On for that was the, that was 
That was the virtual hook, wasn't it, from the side of the stage <laughs> that yeah. played the music? It's normally what um, it's normally okay. what I have to do to you. Yeah, well, in fairness, I'm not the I'm not the, the the worst offender of that on the on on the on the podcast. I'll I'll rattle off a few of the guys who were a bit more sort of on your side on this uh, this uh, this this debate, Ed. So uh, Anil Palmer said that he's supportive. Uh, but willing to accept it might work, uh, might not work, which I think is an important position for F1 to take. Um, you can try it, but you have to be willing to accept if it doesn't work. But that's part of the beauty of it. You then actually have it as a as a proper case study rather than just uh, hypotheticals. Um, Adri Garcia said, can't be more boring than the last seven seasons. It's too easy for top teams to qualify at the front. Uh, back in the 2000s, they had one lap only. So that seems to be a slightly different argument to be honest sort of an advocation of a return to one lap qualifying and just sort of heighten the challenge uh adam smith said it's worth a try just to see what happens it can't be worse than seeing another pole to win and the rest of the grid finishes next to their teammate maximum plus or minus one from their starting position i understand that that feels that's quite a that's quite a common position i think for for some fans who are who are against uh, who are in favor of reverse grids to take because there just seems to be this perception that all F1 races now are boring, which just isn't true. As you said, Ed, there's 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 a spread of quality um, among them. And then just a few more. So Stuart Coulter said, uh, presented a rather mad alternative, which would be to have normal qualifying on Saturday morning, followed by the race on Saturday afternoon for constructors points only. Then the result of that race is reversed to set the grid for the Grand Prix, which is drivers points only. I'm glad that Stuart admitted that that was a ma- that was a mad format because that is a He's gone off piece there. He's moved so far away from the uh, from the original question. Um, and then let's finish off with a couple more. Uh, at Griffin Beach said, I'm for it during these double headers for this very old season just to mix things up, but not for when things get back to normal. Uh, yeah, I, I can see that's kind of F1's logic, isn't it? Is that we've got exceptional circumstances at the moment. So it's worth having a go. Um, my only problem with that is if you, I guess again, you do it for the first few races and don't do it for 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 others. It, it can get to the point where you're um, artificially mixing the results slightly too much. Adam Barton says, "I'm for it as a test, but I wouldn't want it as a championship race." Also conscious of what it does to stats. What do you think, Mark? Obviously, Formula One's not really in a position to have non-championship races, but the stats element's quite a quite a curious one because obviously, I guess it would. Uh, well, first of all, it would render sort of pole positions i guess obsolete for reverse grid races but podiums and points finishes and stuff like that would be impacted does that matter from a historical perspective i think it's already been polluted hasn't it i mean we um as soon as you change the point system you can't really compare points um as soon as you introduce refueling or tire stops you get anomalous fastest laps because somebody pits near the end for fresh tires when they've got no virtually no fuel in and so you can have a very um, mediocre car set the fastest lap um, so a lot of those things have gone anywhere it, it, it's it's more of a, a, a bookkeeper's fetish um, that um, seems to, that seems to be uh, um, attracted to, to to those things I, I don't think in the the wider picture um, it, it matters so much. It's interesting. We're all interested in looking at the stats. We're interested in looking at you know, who's who, who's got the greatest average of uh, wins per starts and things like that because it probably tells us something. But I don't think we need to get bogged down in it. I don't think it, I don't think the stats should be steering the direction of the sport. 
speaking as someone who uh, who I do love stats because they can tell you things, but they're not they're not in themselves a thing, should we say? They're not they're a means to an end. They're not an end in themselves. Racing does not exist to generate statistics. That's not its end point. You can you can point to any number of things that have happened over the years that distort the statistics. One of the early World Championship races with Indy 500. I'm, a number of times I've done uh, statistical analysis pieces and I've had to discount the anomalous Indy 500s of 1950 to 1960. You know, right from the start they were police. Is Johnny Parsons an F1 race winner? Of course he isn't, but some statistics say he is. These things are are, are there to to learn something from, but you can't be absolutist. The list of wins in order is not a list of the worthiness of all drivers in order. There are drivers who've won Grand Prix who are worse than those who never won Grand Prix but should have done. So I, I don't think you want to be too uh, too driven by the uh, by the statistics. I'll end with two very quick ones. Uh, Ross H said he loves the fact that there are so so different options, two totally different spectacles to make up a great weekend. Uh, qualifying drivers on the limit over a single lap with the one putting it together taking it pole and the race honoring racecraft overtaking strategy tire management he thinks that both qualifying and the race are integral parts of formula one so obviously very much in favor of keeping it as is and the final one uh chris hilton they can do a reverse grid race but use it to award half points don't use it to determine the grid for the main race keep traditional qualifying for that i think in itself i understand why that's being pitched but that isn't what f1's worried about here it's not about adding something new it's not about adding a second race to the schedule because they want a second race it's trying to mix it up so that the whole weekend sort of takes a slightly different form and then it's one thing leads to another and it's all part of the same narrative rather than just a reverse grid race for 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 the sake of having a reverse grid race within the format so i like the idea but it isn't part of this if people complaining about the reverse grids even been considered are the same people who might complain if the second Red Bull race is identical to the first. I suspect there will be differences which would be interesting, but we, we've got we've got a kind of test in that we've got these two double headers. at least. We will probably have another doubleheader or two uh, down the line as well. So we're kind of testing of what happens if you if you don't have them, which which will also be, be interesting. But this is the reason, you know, I actually, I don't mind keeping traditional qualifying, start in race order, etc. But the reason to reiterate why I'm open to it is because there's been so such a volume of people telling me how dull it all is and predictable it all is over a very long period of time. So that's that's why it has to be considered. Yep, no, I agree. So there, uh, there, there's loads of responses that I've got that I, we just don't have time to, to 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 go through. So if you wanted to have your uh, your comment read out, but you were forced to sit through Ed ranting twice, uh, send him a message at EdStrawF1 on Twitter. Uh, make sure that you spam him with all of your your hatred for for, for blocking your airtime. But we will be back with uh, Scott's people in, in in the future, and we will go with the original uh, plan for this week. So the question will be: if you if you had an unlimited choice of a of, of a place to have an F one race, what would it be and why? So I will ask that on Twitter as well with the hashtag Scott's people. Splendid. Look forward to uh, to getting some uh, getting some complaints and some. Uh interesting ideas uh well thanks very much scott mitchell and mark hughes and to everyone for listening do head to the races website that's the race.com and don't forget the hyphen loads to read on there check out our youtube channel as well and our other podcasts including the gary anderson f1 show next monday we'll be back with our second attempt at a 2020 formula one season preview (laughs) 